You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend to all of you. Just looking to make sure I'm being heard in the back, making sure I'm coming through okay. But it looks like looks like we're coming through. But hey, happy Memorial Day. It's a beautiful day outside. The sun is shining. And I hope uh, that today uh, you get to spend some time outside. But first, before we even open up God's word here together, I want to say just in honor of Memorial Day, just uh, thank you to all, obviously, the men and women who gave their lives for our country. Um, Really an incredible sacrifice. And so veterans or those within active service, we say thank you. Thank you for... Uh, making that commitment uh, to our country. We're grateful for you. Well, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're working our way through, <clears throat> excuse me, we're working our way through Matthew. So if you have uh, a Bible in front of you or, or your phone, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 12. Believe it or not, we're actually going to finish the chapter today and next week we'll move into Matthew 13. And as you get there, I wanted to start um, today with just... Um, just a story from earlier this year, before the pandemic, which seems like a lifetime ago. But um, back in February, a team of 10 of us uh, from the church traveled to Ecuador to encourage the work of our church partners there. Now, none of us were, are from Ecuador, obviously, right? And none of us were all that great at speaking Spanish, especially me. Uh, but we did have Tony Tucci, our, our language expert, with us. So, so here we have an, an all-American, English-speaking team traveling to uh, a, a, a South American, Spanish-speaking country. Different nations and different languages. And yet the, the, the singular, most meaningful part of this trip was this, this rich bond that was, that was formed between ourselves and our church partners, Claudio and Silvana. And how it came to be or how it unfolded on this trip really was quite unlikely. Uh, that, that Sunday we were there, we attended their church service and, and had plans afterwards to go to a quiet park to, to rest and, and have a conversation together. <laughs> but instead of finding, you know, that quiet park, when we, when we got to this park, it wasn't quiet. It was very loud. In fact, there were thousands upon thousands, like shoulder to shoulder, packed with people. It, it, it turns out that we arrived in, in Ecuador during the middle of a large a national festival. And it, and it was a festival. This is crazy. It's a festival where it wasn't just accepted, but it was encouraged to take these like large spray cans of foam and literally like spray, dispense this foam on anyone and everyone that you came in contact with. So 
inner T-Bone, who was on our team, son of Tony, who was there as well, you know, all 65 pounds of him running through the park with one, two cans, just like dispensing foam on everyone, like kids, adults, and the best was like running along the sidewalks, and if the bus, a bus's window were open, like he's like spraying the people on the buses, guys like on motorcycles, and it was okay. It was totally acceptable. He literally had the best day of his life. Well, after this time of foam spraying, cross-cultural festival immersion, we did find a quiet cafe to chat and have a few moments with our church partners. And afterwards, I was struck by the report from our team. Person after person just reported this unifying bond between themselves and our partners. How they felt this this deep sense of compassion and care. How they greatly benefited from from the the wisdom and prayer from this conversation. In fact, many tears were shed. It was a significant moment of being heard and understood and loved. Truly in this moment, a heart connection was made. And it wasn't a heart connection built on an ability to speak the same language. For, for this whole conversation, what, what was, was through the translator. But it was a heart connection with this singular desire to strengthen each other in treasuring and trusting Jesus, to do the will of God in our lives. You know, all those strangers just a few days earlier... We departed Ecuador with this rich bond like that of a family, like brothers and sisters. In our passage this morning, we're going to see how Jesus redefines our understanding of family. So Matthew chapter 12, we're in verses 46 through 50. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. It's not a long story this morning. But you can follow along with me. While he, speaking of Jesus, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, meaning that this little narrative is connected to the larger context of chapter 12, he's still speaking. While Jesus is still speaking to the people, behold, Jesus' mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But Jesus replied to the man who told them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, we have in this text this morning, Jesus redefining how we understand family. And what does he say there? That our true family is the family of God, all those who do the will of God. Those are Jesus' words. They're not, they're not my words. You see, the family of God is all about relationships. It's not, as the ruling religious leaders would teach, a manufacturer of, of a system of rules to gain entrance into the family. It's a relationship. It's not rules. It's a relationship. A family not based on the blood of our parents, but a family based on the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Ecuador, the power inherent in such a family as this became real to me. So this morning, I want to do two things real simply. One, I want to look at how things normally operate. 
especially within the family. And then look at how Jesus changes what's normal. To, to, to first look at how things normally operate, and then how does Jesus change what is normal? Let's pray together as we dig in to this passage. Lord, we come to you pausing again to say, hey, we need you. Would you open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your words? We ask for your spirit to prune back the hedges that we may hear clearly from you this morning. Amen. Well, first, let's look at how things normally operate, how things normally operate. We, we find in our passage, right, that Jesus is in the middle of a teaching session. His family shows up, right? He's teaching. His family shows up. And the text says in verse 46 that his, his mother and brothers, they're standing outside. And they send someone inside to let Jesus know they want to talk to him. And, and for me, this causes a ton of questions. Like, first of all, where's Joseph? Like, why is he missing from this scene? And why does the family, why do they stay outside and send somebody else inside why don't they just go talk to Jesus themselves? And, and why in the world does Jesus' family think it's like okay to say, hey, you need to pause what you're doing and talk to us? But well, to understand what's going on, I, I think what would be helpful is to know two things about this culture. Right, that family, one, family is a, is a big deal. Family is a big deal. And it's a culture of honor and shame. Family is a big deal and it's a culture of honor and shame. So, so why does Jesus' family all of a sudden show up? We're not told expressively here by Matthew, but given this culture that valued this honoring of one's family, I think there's clues. For starters, we, we know in chapter 12, right, that, that Jesus has been tearing up the religious status quo, quo right? He's been tearing it up. We saw at the beginning of the chapter how Jesus like rejects all the Jewish law of the Sabbath. He rejects it, outright rejects it. Then he, then he calls out the religious leader's hypocrisy. And, and he levers, levels this blistering attack and judgment against these leaders. And, and as a result, we, we saw in this chapter how the religious leaders, they actually labeled Jesus as a tool of Satan. And, and how Jesus becomes a target to be eliminated, to crush him. And, and most likely, this response, this, this knowledge, has likely reached the ears of Jesus' family. So a, a few comments here. One, in a culture of honor and shame, I think Jesus' family is on some level probably embarrassed. That their family honor is at stake. It's threatened by Jesus' words and actions. And not only is the family most likely shamed, but we actually know if we were to read John's gospel account in chapter 7, it says that Jesus' own brothers do not believe who Jesus claims to be. Secondly, in a culture that valued family, Jesus' family, his brother, his, his mother, they shared a responsibility for Jesus' well-being. And we know from this chapter that Jesus is headed right into a dangerous showdown with the most powerful and influential religious authorities of the day. In the parallel account of Mark's gospel in chapter 3, Mark actually says this about this, 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 um, this account. He says, Jesus' family goes out to seize him. For they, his family, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
See, Jesus' family in some sense believes that he's like gone off the deep end, that he may mentally have just lost it. And thirdly, Jesus is the eldest son in this Jewish family. And many believe that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is dead by this time. And, and there is evidence to support that. But regardless if Joseph is alive or dead, the expectation upon Jesus as the eldest son would, one, be to continue the father's trade. And secondly, Jesus would bear primary leadership to the family. So, meaning, ultimately, the family was looking to Jesus to uphold their honor. And I think likely the family has been made aware that the opposite is happening. Which I tend to believe is the reason the family all of a sudden just like shows up. For, for like a family intervention of sorts, a rescue mission to confront, to persuade, to remove Jesus from a very hostile and public situation in which he's become entangled. And I think this is how a family normally would operate, right? Your brother's in trouble and you go and help, and especially a family in this culture. Why? Because in this culture at this time, the family unit ever so more was, the, was your primary allegiance. It was the most important relationship. It was your first priority over all other like individual demand, uh, desires or wants. It was the collective um, priority for you to ensure the health of your family. Your primary responsibility was to the family. And, and this is not too far from where we are today as a culture, right? Generally speaking, our families hold our top priority. Now, now, I have a father. I have a mother. I have three siblings. I have a wife. I have two kids. I have many nieces and nephews. And if any one of them needs me for, for any reason at all, I'm generally like all over it, Right? I'll get up in the middle of the night with our kids. I'll travel a great distance to help a family member. I'll go into debt if needed. I'll do pretty much anything necessary to help my family. And family, if you're listening, don't give me ideas. I'm not that rich. And I think this is most likely true for you as well. That when it comes to your family, there's no limits for what you'll do to meet their needs. So when Jesus' family shows up and wants to talk, you'd expect he'd, he'd go out and chat, right? I think you and I would do that. And, and let's be honest right now. I'm in the middle of preaching, mostly to an empty room here. But if you were to come up, if you were here, if you came up and said, hey, someone outside wants to chat with you right now, I would politely say, hey, after the service, I'd gladly talk with this individual. But, but if you came up to me and said, hey, hey, your wife and your daughters are outside and needed to talk, I think I would like immediately just, hey, hey, I'm sorry, I need to pause right now and see what's going on. I would, and I think you would too if you're in my situation, right? In fact, if Emily came and said, hey, your mom is on the phone. I'm up here, I'm preaching. So, hey, your mom is on the phone and needs to talk to you. I know it's important because she knows that we're in a really significant time. The service is going on. That, that's the way that we would normally operate, right? We all place first priority on those who are closest to us. Family often comes first, family first. 
So when Jesus' family arrives on the scene, I have no doubt that Jesus' family expected that this, this sense of family obligation would kick in and cause Jesus, hey, I need to pause my teaching and talk with them. But Jesus does not do what's expected. Jesus does not do what's expected, does he? Which makes us move into our second stream of thinking that Jesus changes what's normal. Jesus changes what's normal. Look with me how this passage concludes again, picking up in verse 48. But Jesus replies to the man who told him who his family had sent in, Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And it's hard to capture how shocking this would have been back then. But if we're honest, I think even today, it's, it's pretty shocking at what Jesus says. That Jesus would place, in, in some sense, like greater value with, with his own disciples, those, it says, those who do the will of God, than those of his own family. What's normal to all of us is that families first, in their culture then, and in ours today. But Jesus, you see, is changing what's normal. It's not family determined by our biology, but family determined by our relationship with God. Family not determined by biology, but determined by our relationship with God. Well, let me first just say what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that family is unimportant. Jesus is not saying that family is unimportant. Throughout his life, Jesus displayed a great love for his family. Two clear examples quickly is one, Jesus, frankly, redeemed his earthly brothers. They came to belief in him. Jesus loved them enough to die for them. And secondly, at the cross, in a very tender moment, fulfilling his eldest son duty, Jesus entrusted John, the disciple John, to provide and care for his mother. You see, Jesus saw family as important. He was not in this moment somehow like denying their existence or disowning his family members. Because it would be foolish. It would be foolish to forget how Scripture teaches the importance of our earthly families. Start right in the beginning at the creation account, right? In Genesis, where, where families established. In Genesis 2, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A marriage relationship so close that husband and wife are considered one flesh. Or, or consider the Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. Consider Paul, his family instructions in Ephesians. There's a whole bunch here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, bring up your kids in training and instruction of the Lord. Kids, if you're watching, yes, your parents have a responsibility to you. Lastly, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives... And especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Family is important. 
The Bible is clear that family is important. So Jesus is not saying that family is unimportant. What Jesus is saying that our spiritual family is all important. That our earthly family is not unimportant. It's not unimportant. But our spiritual family is all important. Meaning Jesus and his family always comes first. Remember the childhood story of Jesus found in, in Luke's gospel when Jesus was 12 years old, when, when Mary and Joseph, his parents, took him to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover? R- remember how when the festival completed and they, and they headed home, how, how Mary and Joseph assumed that Jesus was in the midst of the crowd going back home, but, but he actually wasn't? Remember Mary and Joseph, they, they go back to Jerusalem. And Luke tells us for three days, three days, they search for Jesus. And where do they find him? They find him, remember, in the temple. They find him in the temple surrounded by the religious leaders, astounded by Jesus' understanding of Scripture. Do you remember Jesus' response to his parents at that moment? It was not like, hey, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry for not listening. I'm, I'm sorry for not going home with you. Like, that probably would make sense, right? As a 12-year-old kid. No, Jesus says this to his mom and dad. He says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? In those words, as a boy... Jesus reveals that he had a family circle that transcended that of his parents, Mary and Joseph. A family headed by his heavenly father. And this is why this text is so encouraging. Because what's most wonderful about Jesus' family circle is that it's available to you and me. How do I know this? Well, look again at verse 50. It says, For whoever... For whoever does the will of my Father. That's the entrance into God's family. Whoever. And that is the most far-reaching word I know. The gate cannot be more wide open. Jesus is changing what's normal. Why do I say that? Well, look again at verse 50. Whoever does the will of of my Father in heaven is what? Is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this is real subtle, but I want you to notice that Jesus expands the list of family. He inserts sister into the mix of this conversation. And this is a bit odd because we know, right, that it's Jesus' mother and brothers who show up. Yet Jesus adds sister in this conversation. Why? Well, I think, oh, I know at this time within Judaism, only men could be a rabbi's disciple. So Jesus changes what's normal to say, hey, any person, man or woman, man or woman, young or old, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, whoever, whoever does the will of my Father belongs in my family circle. So then what is the Father's will? That's a great question. And the Father's will is an expression that Matthew repeats often in his book. It's a running theme. 
And so we want Matthew to define it for us. Here's just two examples. Flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one, but the one who does what? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus continues, and this is important. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what does this tell us about the will of the Father? Well, for starters, it says that the the will of the Father has nothing to do with all those marvelous works like prophesying and casting out demons. But the will of the Father has everything to do with being known by Jesus. It speaks of a relationship. Now now turn forward one last one to, to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, the parable of the lost sheep. Matthew 18, starting in verse 12. Jesus is talking again. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father. It's not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Well, what does this tell us about the will of the Father? It's, it's not, it's, it's the Father's will. It's the Father's will that you and I hear, that we hear the voice of Jesus, to believe, to be saved. For it's not the will of the Father for any of us to perish. And, and we could keep going because this, this expression is all over Matthew. But let me summarize. The will of the Father has everything to do with salvation through Jesus which means that the family of God is not uh, defined by some rabbinic model that was put forth. It has nothing to do with, with, with your race, if you're Jew or not. It has nothing to do with some law-abiding legalism to some sort of rule. The family of God is defined by one's relationship to Jesus. For whoever does the will of the Father belongs to God's family, which is why Matthew concludes this chapter. He concludes this chapter, which is full of tension, full of opposition with this story. We, we saw the religious leaders. They're opposing Jesus. There's a growing tension in that relationship, even plotting to kill him. And now, even there's, there's some within Jesus' own family, in some sense, who are opposing his ministry. But yet, there are some whom Jesus calls family before him. Jesus is changing what's normal, shockingly declaring that his family was not those merely in his physical, earthly family, nor, nor those considered, you know, that they thought they're related because they were, were Jew or because they were abiding by the Old Testament law. He's saying, hey, those are not my family members. Jesus is saying, hey, those sitting right before me, listening with soft hearts, ears to hear, responding to faith in my teaching, this, this is my family. 
the religious leaders sadly, ultimately, opposed Jesus because they had hard hearts. Morally righteous, yes, but they did not have ears to listen. They were proud. They were, in, in some ways, too learned, full of good works on the outside, yeah, but on the inside, they were empty. So Christian, this morning, let me, let me simply ask you this question. Why do you belong in the family of God? Why do you, believe, why do you belong in the family of God? Did you earn it? Were you born into it? It's just what your family believes. Or did you freely receive this gift by faith? May we learn, may we be learners of the heir of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders, and embrace the pathway of humility and lowliness, to, to have a desire to know more and more the person of Jesus. And friend, if you're listening right now, if you found us online and, and, and perhaps you're exploring what does it mean or who is the person of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to belong to the family of God? I, I cannot encourage you enough just to, to pause right now and, and hit, hit that little blue messenger button on Facebook on the app and, and reach out. Our staff are online. We would love, love to answer any question you have, to encourage you. This is ultimately the most important thing in all of our lives. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. The gospel doesn't save us just as individuals. The gospel saves us and adopts us into a new family, God's family. This is all about adoption here. Meaning if you've trusted Jesus, then I'm a family member of yours and you are a family member of mine. Our, our lives are interweaved. Your joys and sorrows are my joys and sorrows. And my joys and sorrows are your joys and sorrows. And for some of us, I know this is incredibly good news. I know in one sense, many of us physically live a great deal of distance away from our, our family members, and that's hard. I know some of you have had family members pass away. I know others, you know, there's been rough situations that's prevented you from knowing your family. And perhaps maybe there's some who sadly, tragically, you know, you're experiencing alienation from your family because of your faith in Jesus. Friends, the wonderfulness of our adoption, of our new reality is that you're never, you're never too far away from somebody in your new family. And can I just be real straight with you? This is not a metaphor or figure of speech. Jesus is not saying we're like family. Jesus is saying we are family. The family of God, the church, we are a family. In fact, Jesus is saying that this spiritual family is more your family than your own physical earthly family. Our primary allegiance is to each other. We belong to each other. Sharing together one another, we're sharing together a responsibility to see each other flourish in our faith. And there, there's nothing halfway about what Jesus is saying here. 
This calls for a radical, a radical reorientation of our lives. And two real big implications for us is, one, this eliminates favoritism. This eliminates favoritism. Gender, race, age, personality, wealth, it doesn't matter in God's family. Any man or woman who follows Jesus is part of the family. And every individual within his family demands your full allegiance. And secondly, this eliminates isolation. This eliminates isolation, meaning any notion that you can live as a solitary Christian is just eliminated. God's family is strengthened in in our faith by our interaction and our encouragement and our support of one another. And this is why community is such a big deal for us at the Vine. This is why city group, which are our small groups, is tied together with, with church membership. What Jesus is saying here, it's a big deal. The family of God is a big deal, and we take that seriously. It's why our vision statement, it begins with the the vine church as a spirit-filled, what? A spirit-filled family. That is why when when I message on our city group Slack channel, I say, I always start with saying, hey, hey fam, hey family. And why I reference our city group meeting time as family time. And let me encourage you, when, when I chat, when I chat with newer folks, the, the, one of the major reasons why I hear individuals who, who kind of plant their flag, who stick uh, here at the church, is because of their authentic love discovered by this community. I just want to encourage you. You guys are doing an incredible job. Incredible job. Be encouraged. But yet I also know, myself included, that opening our lives to others, it's challenging. It's challenging opening our lives to others. You know, there's much fear, maybe past hurt, maybe an insecurity. But the Apostle John says this, that we believe in the name of of Jesus, and we are called to love one another as he gives us this commandment. We're called to love one another. For some of you, what you need to do is take that next step, that step of faith, to join a small group, to join one of our city groups. It's a step of faith, I get that. But it's also an obedience thing. God calls us together as one family to help one another cross the finish line of faith. He calls us to this. And even during this unique season of where we're mostly staying at home during this time, our, our groups are still meeting. We're meeting online. And if you've not yet taken that step of faith to join a group, I encourage you to do so. Again, reach out to us. We want to connect you with a group, a family. For others of us, this is, this is an opportunity to just inventory our care and love for one another. You see, God is calling us to an active love This is not a passive thing. It's an active love. It requires that we not just show up on our city group night. That's great. But it's not just showing up, but it's engaging. This is is in a real sense. This is your family time. It's your time to, to learn how to pray for your family. This is your time to laugh and enjoy the gift of relationship with your brothers and sisters. This is, this is your time to, to meet and hear the needs of those within your family. This is the time to cheerlead, to champion others in their faith. 
Here's the reality. We live in a consumer-driven world. There's marketing, advertising all around us. And so our tendency, myself included, all too often is to come to Citigroup, to show up at the door and say, who is going to love me? Who's going to love me? But see, that's a self-filled love. And that's not, that's not Jesus' love. That, 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 that Jesus calls us to love like he loved, to love like Jesus loved you, to take the other, to take each other into your heart just as they are, just as they are, and to cherish and nourish them there. Because we're all, we're all in the family of God. So let me conclude with a simple illustration that I ran across this week. This is not from me. I, I am borrowing it um, from somebody else. But it's, it's about how we answer the door. It's an illustration about how one answers the door. And there's, there's two different ways that this illustration points out. One is to look at 1,500 years ago, a long time ago, under the rule of St. Benedict, monks were governed by a set of orders. And within these orders were instructions for the porter, the one who answered the monastery door. All right? So there, here's the, this way. First, this was the list of directions or guidelines. The porter was to sleep near the entrance in order to hear and respond in a timely manner. So they sleep near the door. Second, the porter was to offer a welcome in a manner with all gentleness that comes from the reverence of God and with the warmth of love. Third, as soon as anyone knocked, and before knowing who was even on the other side of the door, the porter was to reply, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And lastly, the porter was to make sure that every other monk knew of the presence of the visitor so that they could join in extending a welcome to the visitor. In contrast, the 20th century writer Dorothy Parker famously used to answer with this greeting, what fresh hell is this? What fresh hell is this? It's not hard to pick which door you'd rather be received at, right? So I close by asking you this question of how do you respond when someone knocks on the door of your everyday life? How do you respond when somebody knocks on the door of your everyday life? Maybe it's that chatty neighbor down the street. Maybe it's the person you struggle connecting with at Citigroup. Maybe it's the boss, the unthankful boss coming into your office. How do you respond when someone knocks on the door of your everyday life? Is it perhaps closer to, to what fresh hell is this? Or thanks be to God. As simple as it sounds, how we open our door is fairly indicative of how we live our life. You see, God is calling us to the privilege of opening the doors of our lives to each other to welcome each other as family. And in the kingdom of God, our spiritual family is all important. Open your door. I encourage you, I plead with you, open your door with gentleness and love. And let the family of God, let's be the family God designed the church to be. Let's be that family that God calls us to be together. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we give you thanks this morning, one, for your word, and, and two, for your salvation. 
God, we thank you that we are adopted into your family. Lord, that salvation is made available to us for all who believe and confess you as Savior and Lord. Lord, thank you for that reality. And God, I want to say thank you for all my brothers and sisters who have in the past encouraged me and for all who will encourage me in the future. Lord, thank you for this unique family that we are given together to help each other fight to the finish line of faith. Lord, help us to grow in significant ways in the way in which we come alongside each other. May we family each other well, always looking to learn, always uh, seeking to have soft hearts to come under your word and authority. Lord, help us to learn from the religious leaders, to reject any sort of pride or, or, or learning or knowledge that prevents us from knowing you more. Lord, we want to be the family that you called us to be. Would you help us in your precious name? Amen.